0: Hey, everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, best selling author, and he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm
1: good, and I'm looking forward to this topic about relationships. And I'm going to talk
0: entirely about what I've learned from you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. So I was I was the primary model that you that you used in your new book. Is that what you're trying to say? It wasn't it wasn't 40 years of couples counseling and family therapy It was just about your relationship with your son. All right. All right. No pressure, dad. I get how it is. So As I just alluded to, Rick has a new book out. It's focused on building the healthy relationships that are a huge part of a happy life, and it's titled Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. And if you're interested in ordering it, you can find it pretty much wherever books are sold. I've also linked to it in the description of today's podcast episode. So for starters, Dad, congratulations. I don't know what number book this is, but are we at eight? Is this nine? Seven. Like where are we? Seven. Seven. Seven, seven. Only oh, seven. seven books. Man. God, I co authored one book and I'm just I'm just shivering in dread at <laughs> the idea of writing seven of them. Well, honestly.
1: I just feel incredibly grateful that anyone Mm. ever would want to read a single page of a single book. Really, that's true in my heart. And writing a book is like a message in a bottle. And there are many different kinds of messages, a poem, a song, a dance, a sculpture, right? And you cast it out. It kind of has blown my mind, honestly, that my books have sold over a million copies in English alone. Wow, yeah. And that's crazy. Like touch, obviously some people, you know, are more prolific even than that, but wow, thank you. Thank you out to the world. Thank you, and thank you to the forces and factors moving through me, mm. right? We are, I don't know what to call it, we're, we're like wind chimes played by the wind, and that's mm. what makes the music and the stuff coming through us. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to get into the detail of it. And I'm so slap happy around the book. I might be a little silly from time to time. but
0: Oh, well, that's totally great. And if anything, probably makes it even better for people to listen to. So you've been working on this one for a while. As I said, it's kind of the culmination of a lot of your work as a couples counselor and family therapist in particular. And you became the brain guy after writing Buddha's Brain, makes sense, the brain guy. But most of your practice has really focused on relationships. I think it's probably fair to say, yeah. Yeah. And even when people walk into your office as a single individual, a lot of the stuff that they're talking to you about is, I got this issue with my dad, or I got this issue with my spouse or whatever else. And uh, the book's built from 50 key ideas or practices that you've just found in in the course of those many, many years of working with people tend to really help people get more from their relationships. And one of the places I want to start is just with the title. I know that there were a million title options for this book. We talked about several of them. But you wanted to really emphasize the deliberate action piece of it, the idea of making a great relationship. And I I would love if you could just talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's empowering to realize that our relationships are not given. They are Mm. made. And yeah, we are constrained by who the other people are that we're interacting with. We have some influence over them. But where we have most of our influence is essentially over what we think and what we say each day. And through what we think and say each day, we can make our relationships a little worse or a little better,
0: both in terms of how other people treat us. Both options are available yeah. for us. Absolutely, available. <laughs> you, know,
1: you can drive your car down the road or into a wall. It's yeah. up to you. Yeah. It's all on the table. Either way, same car, <laughs> right? Uh, so for me, that's incredibly empowering. And I started out really going into my history, which I've talked about on the podcast, of being. Bad at relationships. I think deep down inside my heart, I was always a warm hearted, empathic, and caring kid. But for lots and lots of reasons, I was incredibly bottled up and walled up and out of relationship with myself, right? Moving into adulthood. So I've had so much to learn. And in effect, each one of the 50 very short chapters, 50 simple practices in the book is something I've learned over time. Mm -hmm. And through that learning, I've also seen that when other people engage that practice, things tend to go better. And yeah. I think for a lot of people, they just feel pushed around by relationships or mm-hmm. they're on autopilot about it. They're just kind of drifting. Mm-hmm. Well, this is how I am. This is how other people are. I'm kind of stuck. And you can particularly feel that coming out of a time of plague that we're still dealing, obviously, with you know a lot of political divisiveness, a lot of awkwardness, new issues, external pressures that make it harder sometimes to have a great relationship. And so in the context of all that, I've super zeroed in on what's practical. I think there are a lot of highfalutin, airy-fairy general principles. Don't be a
0: jerk. Well, okay, (laughs) now what, right? Yeah, and talking about both the scope and the practicality of the book, you broke it into six different sections. In my mind, it's kind of like five main parts and then a sixth part. That's a sort of epilogue for the book almost, but I would love what your take is on that. And they're titled, to just move through them really quickly, Befriend Yourself, Warm the Heart, Be at Peace with Others, Stand Up for Yourself, Speak Wisely, which unsurprisingly to me is the largest section of the book (laughs) because it's very hard to speak wisely, and then Love the World at the End. And it feels like you're, you're highlighting three levels of relationship that exist for people. The relationship that we have with ourselves, the relationship that we have with our immediate circle, the people that we're actively interacting with on a day-to-day basis, and then the relationship that we have with the broader community of other, other humans, or if you want to expand it out to other beings altogether. Is that what you had in mind? Am I imposing that on your structure, or do you actually think about it that way?
1: As usual, you're very perceptive and you kind of penetrate to the heart of the matter, that's actually true, and it's useful to realize that, of course, we move back and forth between those. For example, often, if you, let's say, go for a little bit of a walk in nature, maybe it's at Central Park in New York City, maybe it's the hills around your home, somewhere, maybe you just simply look up at the sky and see the clouds and the birds, and you take a minute or two or three to do that, You've opened out into relatedness with nature, with life, and then what happens very often is that inside yourself you feel calmer. There's a calming, there's a centering, and it feels kind of like a coming home to yourself, which seems paradoxical. Opening out into the world Mm -hmm. brings us into a homecoming with ourselves. So there's a movement among these different ways of doing things. Very often though, it's foundational to start with yourself. Can you bring a fundamental kindness to yourself? How can you help yourself to tolerate your own reactions so that you can get some breathing room from them and they don't hijack you? How can you look at, frankly, your own part in the matter? Uh, One of the chapters later on in the book with other people is take care of your side of the street. In other words, one of the things I learned, and in fact, I really learned it uh, soon after you were born and all hell broke loose. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like new parents, uh, suddenly your mom and I had to actually agree on certain things rather than Uh. agree to disagree or move into separate worlds. We were really busy, we were tired, we loved you dearly. I also, you know, in terms of where people often are when they have children, I I was in the developmental stage. She was too, of kind of launching new careers, like it all happens sort of in your late 20s and early 30s. So there we were, and one of the things I realized after a fair amount of fussing and fuming inside myself, that one of the fastest ways I could move to a better place was to take care of my side of the street, to clean up my own act, to take maximum reasonable personal responsibility for your mom's complaints or grievances or what there was to do, and to rest in the knowingness of what a long time ago the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness, that I would actually taken care of my side of the street, which then was also the best odds way to, you know, invite your mom into, you know, maybe (laughs) taking care of her side of the street too. But (laughs) we won't talk about that. We'll just talk about (laughs) myself. So something like that, when you look inside yourself and you realize, you know, for all your complaints about those other people and the legitimacy of your complaints Mm, about those mm -hmm. other people, at the end of the day, how can you be a better friend? How can you be a better parent, ex, worker, boss? How can you be better there without putting pressure on yourself but to realize you have this power to improve things inside yourself
0: which then tend to ripple out into your relationships? And that's
1: just one of the 50
0: chapters but
1: an important one.
0: Yeah, I think that it's so important that you started with the relationship that we have with ourselves Yeah, which is just the foundation for everything else that comes out of it. And I can just speak personally as I've, come to various kinds of peace inside of myself. And that is clearly an ongoing process. I'm not done with that one, still working. But um, as that's gotten better, as I've been able to lighten up and relax and frankly love myself more, I've developed a much greater capacity to be good and loving and kind and caring toward other people. And if we're carrying around a lot of pain and suffering inside of ourselves, we inevitably carry that into our relationships. It's impossible for us not to, because we're communal creatures, and we're going to get activated by whatever somebody's tossing at us in the moment can stir up all of this material from way back when. So it's a way in which the past is made present, and if we can increasingly work with that, I think that all of our relationships get so much better. So I just think it was great that you started there.
1: Yeah, if you'll indulge me, Mm -hmm. and People listening, I I invite you into hearing this as kind of a personal practice. So I'd like to read some of the chapter titles, which each one of them is a practice. Each one of them is a kind of instruction that you take on as a practice in the part one, Befriend Yourself. So it starts with chapter one, Be Loyal to Yourself. Rest in calm strength. Accept yourself. Respect your needs. Know you're a good person. Forgive yourself. Even I, as the person who wrote it, I just feel it as I say it. And it feels like, yeah, that's, that's good. That's how we want to be with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right? And in each one of the chapters, I go into the detail of it, but just to list them. And for example, even right now, I realize, you know, respect your needs. I've been working incredibly hard lately related to this Global Compassion Coalition, which is a wonderful cause and it's unsustainable. I'm trying to run a marathon at the pace of a sprint. And I have other needs <laughs> that are starting to call to me, including my needs to have a wife who's happy with me, whose husband has gone AWOL <laughs> for about six months. <laughs> and, and Anyway, so just maybe that has some value for people listening to them, as each one of them is a the kind of practice
0: you can do. In addition to the, the major sections of the book, which are themselves kinds of themes, were there any overarching themes that you found yourself returning to over and over again in the content of the book? Like an example of this for me in Resilient is that I just found myself coming back to agency over Mm. and over again, as even though it was specifically one of the 12 sections, it just kind of suffused all of the parts of the book that I had a heavier hand in writing, this idea of what can I do over and over again.
1: Was there anything like that for you with this one? It's a great question. I think there was definitely a major through line, which might sound a little counterintuitive, in that I was basically helping people through these different practices, which essentially are, what do you think, what do you say? Yeah. Including, what do you say to yourself, too? But basically, what are you doing with your mind and your mouth? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we have an incredible ability to, you know, to shape our relationships for the better. All right. I was working my way toward how do you finally, effectively, stand up for yourself and be assertive and work through hard conflicts. But to be able to do that effectively, there's all this preparation. There are all these building blocks that are so important to lay in first Because as you lay them into yourself, and as also you build that foundation in a relationship, then your odds of success, when you finally have to argue about something or pin somebody down or resize a relationship, which is one of the chapters in the book under Speak Wisely, if you get to that point, which is where the rubber meets the road, life's easy with people when we all want the same things. Routinely, you may have noticed we often do not want the same things or in the same ways at the same times or with the same priority. What do you do then? And how do you do that part effectively? So, for me, a lot of the book, which is mainly various versions of how to be a nicer person toward yourself and toward (laughs) other people, is on that foundation of what could feel a little Mr. Rogers saturated that we move into the tough times when you need to tune into your inner lion maybe in an effective way with a person who's really challenging for you or around a very challenging topic.
0: Often what I would imagine what brought people, particularly couples, into your office was one of those big rubber meets the road moments. Yep. Where there was just a point of major conflict that they were trying to resolve in some kind of way and they understandably were having difficulties doing it on their own so they sought outside help. Part of what I feel like you're saying is that wow, so many of those conflicts existed in large part because those people had had a hard time doing the foundational work right. before they got to the conflict that yep. might have supported them in navigating it more effectively. Is that basically right?
1: Exactly right. And sometimes people, my aunt, your great aunt, Aunt Vicky, no longer alive, beautiful being, and my uncle Fred, also wonderful folks. Toward the end of her life, my my dear Aunt Vicky said, you know your uncle Fred and I never argued. And I don't think they did. And they got lucky in their nature and they both grew up in a kind of monoculture. They both attended the same church their entire lives. They grew up in North
0: Dakota. North Dakota,
1: they moved to Colorado. The community was very much the same. So they had a lot of good external support. They were reasonably fortunate. They weren't systemically targeted for bias and discrimination, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They, They caught some good breaks. And sometimes couples catch a good break. Absolutely true. And this book is really not just about romantic relationships. It's about work. It's about relationships with our neighbors, our coworkers, you know, our, our parents, our kids, our relatives, our in-laws. And ultimately, the people all around the world, including those we, we might disagree with quite vigorously. So it's in that context then. But you're exactly right. Other than catching a break, it's really important to do a lot of foundational work on the way to getting to what's difficult. And it also, I was working my way backwards from the ways in which I think a lot of people don't speak up enough about their own needs. Mm. And they just put up with having less than what they could really have and less than what they long for, but they don't know how to effectively speak up for their own needs. And maybe that's the second through line in the book because I've seen it again and again. Relationships are built from interactions and interactions are built from turn-taking, back and forth. A and B, A says something, B says something, A says something, B says something. And very often, A would say something in my office, B would respond, A would say something again, and then B would turn and stare at me and say, see, they're doing it again. What do you say next? Right? And in a lot of ways, the book's an answer to that question where people get kind of stuck or stalled out in their interactions and therefore in their relationships. Well, now what? What could I say or what could I think or what could I do that would maximize the possibilities given what's right now on the table? And I wanted to be able to give people many, many useful and different answers to that question,
0: what do I do now? So talking about laying that strong foundation for a relationship so that you can handle conflict better when it does come up. When people came into your office, whether it was one person or a couple or a family, and they got into some conflict about whatever was going on in their relationship, did you, as a clinician, ever have moments where you were like, man, if these two people or if this one person had just done fill-in-the-blank differently, they would have such a different result right now? Was there like a consistent fill-in-the-blank that you found that, that they could have done differently?
1: Uh, One is to get better regulated personally. That sometimes is the issue. You have one partner who's fairly calm and kind of even keeled and the other person who just gets either emotionally intense or super shut down, which is dysregulation either way. And that would be one. So people listening, thinking about this in a relationship can think about certain keys for themselves, right? So that's one. A second thing is, Boy, (laughs) it goes back to the thing I said about take care of your own side of the street. In other words, if either, and especially both of them, would just maximize delivering the goods to every reasonable extent, that would make a lot of difference. Because after two weeks of doing that, let's say, if the other person has not shifted, then the person who really has budged for two weeks and delivered the goods for two weeks is on a very strong position to really ask for what they need. So that's that's the thing I would see again and again. And I think at another level, people lose touch with the being behind the eyes in the other person. And I would say if there's one thing that could really be helpful is if both parties, both people, certainly one, ideally both, in any kind of relationship could slow it down and feel the suffering of the other person, the beingness of the other person, and just kind of start from there. You know, have that be in the space and ground themselves in their goodwill for the other person. With that established, then, you're actually in a much stronger position to be blunt and direct about what you personally need to change about that other person before you're gonna open your heart to them again. Then there's another piece of it, which is I've seen people just get way over-invested in what happens in the minds of others. Wow, yeah, I love this one. Yeah, you know, how do you think about me? What are your intentions toward me? Do you think I'm a good person? And all the rest of that.
0: Getting really sucked into the minutia of psychodrama can be a, a real pitfall in a relationship,
1: yeah. Yeah, and there's this weird paradox, It's a, and it's been a growing space for me where you do two things or two things are going on inside you with regard to another person. You're both rested in a goodwill toward them, not ill will. You wish them well. There's a kind of simple, basic compassion and kindness that sort of radiates out from you, almost as a field through which others move. So it's not contingent on other people to be rested in a simple, basic, you know, goodwill, good-heartedness, open-heartedness. And as you rest in that space, you can feel increasingly independent of the storm swirling through the mind of another person. Mm. And more and more you start to, you realize kind of poignantly, you know, gosh, I wish you well, and I'm not making that happen inside you. Mm. I'm operating with integrity on my side of the street, I'm not playing superior, I'm not being righteous about it. I really am, sincerely. And for all the good reasons inside myself, no matter what you do, I'm really taking care of things. I'm really showing up, I'm really being decent, I'm getting off my positions quickly, I'm recognizing what there is to correct and I'm implementing correction at a reasonable level going forward. I'm doing these things and you know, more and more, it's like I really wish you well, but it's not my fault that you're feeling what you're feeling right now. Mm. you know, And the two go together. Because if you don't have that underlying stance of kindness, fundamentally, a kind of humanity toward that other person, then the other side of it, of boundaries, of differentiation, distancing from the mindstream mm. of another person can feel very apathetic, unkind, cold, nor even narcissistic. Self-absorbed because you're so disengaged from other people. It's the combination of the two that wow, I've found this an incredible sweet spot. Yeah.
0: It feels like part of what you're alluding to here, at least to me, or what this is making me think of, is just this balance between intimacy and autonomy that you've written about extensively in the past, and we even talked about a bit in resilient together, that just exists inside of all of our relationships and it's really about just finding the sweet spot. And, and some relationships could use a little more intimacy and some relationships could use a little more autonomy. And different people have differing desires for intimacy and autonomy and figuring out where to land and kind of find the right spot between both the desires of the two people and then alongside that, what might be healthier for the relationship can be really tough for people because sometimes you have relationships between two people who both really desire a lot of intimacy. But what would be healthier for the relationship is cultivating a bit more autonomy, actually, like they're having an enmeshment issue with each other.
1: That's right. And having said all that, then when, it, when the rubber does meet the road, you know, I, again, I'll, if you'll indulge me, I'll just kind of offer a handful of chapter titles in this territory and people can think of them as, again, practices. How might it serve me if I were practicing this with what I think and what I say? I talk about speaking from the heart, trying a softer tone, (laughs) that's a huge one. I've really had to learn that one too because I can easily slip into a certain exasperation or sharpness. I've really learned that tone really, really matters. You can say what you need to say, but in a simple and direct way. Another one is to not rain on the parade of other people. I find a lot of folks, uh, I'm going to put it, the inner child, if you will, or just a really sweet part of ourselves bubbles up with a good idea. And then you bump into everybody else who's dumping on the parade. You know, they're doubting, they're skeptical, they're laughing at you, they don't think you could actually do it. You know, don't rain on the parade. Or another one, like I talk about, is to admit fault and move on, right? Admit fault and move on, and then the part about say what you want, so much of what we're working toward here is being able to say what you want directly, without euphemisms, without needing to justify what you want, and I see a lot of people, they're in this middle zone between, in which they're basically sputtering, and it would serve them much better to either stay quiet and let it go, or to assert themselves really clearly about it in a way that actually goes to some kind of resolution.
0: What do you think supports people in being assertive in that way?
1: One, know what you want in concrete terms. What would it look like if you got what you wanted? A lot of times people say things very vaguely because they're afraid to really name what they really want.
0: Yeah, and just to quickly jump in, I've totally had this thing that I've been wrestling with over the last six months to a year, where there's been a lot of like, oh, I don't know if this is exactly the way that I want this thing to go, and I would just like it to be kind of different. And Elizabeth, very understandably, asks me, okay, well, what would that look like? What does the alternative actually look like for you? And I so struggle to give a coherent answer. Like, I know that whatever it is, isn't it, but I don't know what it is, and therefore I can't communicate it. Yeah. Yeah and figuring out what it is has been like a total process.
1: A layer of that is to identify for yourself what's the experience you are seeking. Yeah. Distinct from the form. And you did a brilliant job actually in the book Resilient to really emphasize this point because Mm -hmm. the form is up for grabs. And maybe the other person doesn't wanna give you that form but they're happy to find other forms, other ways to respond to you or to help you to have the experience you long for so what and the experience is very intimate people get vulnerable about this say oh, 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 what i really want <laughs> but at least inside yourself know what it, what the experience is that you're you're trying to get that's the end through the means of the form of what other people say or do right so that another thing that really helps is to feel inside yourself a kind of worthiness or all rightness even deservingness of whatever it is you want that it's okay to want that it's okay to mm. put that on the table often there's a justice element where you're standing up for in a sense a kind of unfairness you're dealing with you're dealing with people in your who's your roommates who you just kind of leave their junk in the common area and it's there's an injustice they are externalizing the cost of managing your own stuff into the commons and dumping on other people. Or maybe people have done that with you emotionally, maybe in your history. So you're addressing an injustice actually. So to feel it's okay, it's okay to bring this forward. Another is to actually know your words. What are the words you're gonna use? And I wrote out things I wanted to say before an important conversation with my dad, for example, or with other people to really get to the the key words or phrases that I actually wanna communicate that are unmistakable and undeniable, including ones that operationalize and define quite clearly what it is that I'm asking for here. But know what your words are. That's helpful. Another thing I've just seen a million times, I cannot tell you how often I saw it in my office, is that basically there's A and there's B, and sorry, I'm gonna introduce another letter, X, A wants X from B, okay? So A then puts X on the table, and B then talks about Y. Okay, what do you do then? You can go chase Y, or you can get aggravated about the fact that B has named Y, or you can reestablish X. And a term for this interactively is sometimes called topic control. So staying on topic coming back again and again to your X is a really helpful thing. And then when you've got X centered in the table, are you actually getting to agreement with that other person? Because very often, A will put X on the table, B will grunt or or nod or look out the window or talk about Y or something else will happen. And A will stop there because they're already feeling nervous about being assertive and they're already feeling like oh maybe I shouldn't have brought this up ooh and they they let it go but at the bottom line is that B never agreed to X not in any way that was real that B really took on and so one of the really useful things is when you have X on the table to slow it down so that you can really find out actually if B has agreed to it. Mm, And mm -hmm. one version of that is to ask B to say back to you what they think they're agreeing to going forward. It's not that you're trying to pound them down like in a court of law, just at a human level. What's our shared understanding here? Because the basis of healthy relationships is trust, and the basis of trust is reliability. So if you want to know, what can I count on you for? And I need to know if I cannot Count on you for doing X, because then I've got to judge accordingly. What am I going to do in this relationship? Potentially resizing it. So get converging on a clarity of agreement and so many issues boil down to A did not state their X clearly. Yes. I'm not blaming A. Yeah. I'm just being descriptive. There was no clear X on the table. It was really fuzzy. Can't we just be nice?
0: What does that mean? Uh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: What does that mean? Or I want you to love me better. What? (laughs) You know, or could we maybe have some, you know, intimate time? Okay, but what does that actually mean, right? How often, when, you know, of what kind, on the basis of what foundations? What do you actually mean? So there's no clear X on the table. And then the other key issue is, even when there is an X on the table, B has not actually agreed to it. There's no clarity of commitment on the part of B, either because B doesn't understand what X is, or isn't so sure about it, or maybe says, okay, sure, just to get A off their back, but B has really no underlying real intention to keep that agreement, because for all kinds of reasons, including maybe B thinks, as many people do, that it's really important to be reliable at work, but it's really okay to be flaky about interpersonal agreements in their friendships, with their neighbors, or with their partner, or even their kids. So that's the second key problem. B is actually not yet agreed to it. And then third problem is, even if there's a clear X on the table, and even if B is actually agreed to it, what do you do if B drifts and drops the ball? What do you do if B doesn't come through, or yet again, acts in the way that is problematic for A? you know, yet again starts yelling or yet again gets hammered or buzzed, what do you do then? It's really important to reestablish agreement because if B has ostensibly agreed to X and then starts drifting away from that. Not doing that, yeah. Yeah, that becomes the new normal if you don't address it. So for me, those are examples of really effective ways to move toward a good resolution uh, with other people about an issue between you.
0: Yeah, I think that the whole topic of how do you communicate wants in clear ways and work toward an agreement with your partner is like, I don't know, 70% of yep. romantic relationships in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. once you get past the, the yeah. basic foundations of, okay, we basically like each other, we basically love each other, and we more or less spending enjoy spending time together. Once you've checked those boxes, it really becomes about managing agreements and getting on the same page in these ways. And in order to do that, you have to be clear about what the heck you're talking about when you're talking about something. And you can see this, man, to to expand the lens to to my, weirdly enough, my chosen job these days, in the personal growth world, I think you see this a lot too. There's a lot of like words that sound nice when they're all put together into a sentence, but you exit the sentence and you're like, what did that person actually mean by what mm. they said? And it can be really hard to tell because they're just not being specific and granular enough about it. So kind of swimming in that same pool here. What do you think helps people stick to their guns when they get like a little bit of pushback without becoming completely annoying about it, if that makes sense? Right. One thing that helps is to slow
1: it down and to make sure you did not misunderstand something. Because if you jump in as I have too quickly mm. sometimes recently in this work situation.
0: You assume that the other person is, is doing the bad thing, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. or you don't mm-hmm. actually read down into the email. You just see the headline and you don't read literally the qualifying language in the fourth paragraph down. You just jump in too quickly. Then you embarrass yourself later, you lose credibility, it's a real cost in the relationship, so that's one thing. But then let's suppose that it really has happened. Sometimes you look at it and you realize, you know, in this relationship with this neighbor or this person at work, it's not worth the relationship cost to bring it up with them. I'm just going to quietly resize this relationship. I get it. I get it. They're just not going to come through in that way, or they're going to keep doing their thing in that other way, and I'm going to take a step back. Sometimes you do that. Other times, you've got to bring it up. And it often helps to bring it up from the standpoint of being a little quizzical, gentle, go in softly, don't come in hot, guns blazing, come in softly, curiosity, along the lines, for example, of something like, gee, gosh, I I thought we agreed that you'd be home for dinner regularly. I know you have a big job, but the kids are here, I'm here, I've got a big job too, including raising these, these kids what happened? I'm just kind of trying to understand. Then, often, you have to wade through the other person getting defensive and guilty and reactive and counterattacking sometimes to make it go away. And that's why I think it's really helpful to just keep coming back to it. Well, I'm just curious going forward, given that you did actually come home after 6.30 for the last three nights, what's your intention here, really, deep down? And There is something that I'm willing to tolerate the discomfort of others when I feel my cause is just. That's a fancy way of putting it. But are we prepared to be okay with the other person being uncomfortable that we are calling them on a broken agreement and more deeply, in effect, implicitly, often calling them on their lack of commitment to keeping agreements with us in general. And maybe Mm -hmm. calling them in a deep way on the ways in which We don't matter that much to them. They say we do, but deep down, hmm, how centered are we in their mind, particularly if it's a significant relationship? And that can be kind of uncomfortable for ourselves to bring up and to sustain and to tolerate another person's discomfort. Like you used to hate it when other people were uncomfortable.
0: Still do. I've just gotten a little better regulated about it. <laughs> You've know, yeah, gotten totally.
1: You really are. <laughs> and
0: so, you know, right there, it's our own- Super true, though. Yeah, super true. Our own
1: discomfort about their discomfort can form one of the bars of our invisible cage. Yes,
0: this is so true.
1: And it doesn't mean being a jerk. You know, that's why these preparatory foundations are so important, which we haven't talked about a whole part. One of the six parts is about warming your heart toward mm. other people but it's on that foundation then uh, that you can move into letting others be, you know, someone uncomfortable. And then there's a moment of truth. And I think that's another thing. In our age, you know, I just think a generation ago and certainly a thousand years ago where the stakes were much higher typically in everyday survival, getting to truth with other people was a life and death matter. Can I really count on you to stick up for me, right, when the soldiers come? Can I really count on you to help us when winter comes and we're hungry? It was really important. These days, there's a dearth of looking into the eyes of other people and really, really getting at what really can I count on you for, really? And I don't mean being weird about it or giving them the new age stare, but I just mean like, hey, we need each other. We depend on each other. So it's, of course, natural to want things from each other.
0: Yeah. I think that so many of our relationships come down to the balance between what I need and what you need. And some people are a little too focused actually on what you need and they haven't come to terms with their own wants and needs or how to express them effectively in their relationships. So I know you've got to go. And I also think that that's a great place to wrap up today's episode. So I had a really good time talking with Rick about his new book and about what we can do Inside of our own lives to build better relationships. Today, I talked with Rick about his new book, Making Great Relationships Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. And if you would like to purchase it, you can do so pretty much wherever books are sold. And I've also linked to it in the description of today's podcast episode. I'd really recommend checking it out. It's a wonderful new book from Rick. He put a lot of time and effort into the book. And it really is the culmination of, man, for the better part of 50 years, the guy has been working with people, supporting them through their relationships. And he spent a huge part of that time as a couples counselor, a family therapist, really just in the day-to-day process of what leads to good relationships and how we can deliberately make more of them in our lives. And that's where we started today's conversation, this idea of deliberate effort. It's really easy to feel like relationships are just kind of something that happens to us in the course of our lives, right? We go out into the world, we bump into different people. Certainly, we spend a lot of our lives in school or in our work, and we're just kind of constantly surrounded by others. So these relationships just happen. But the truth is that healthy relationships, most of the time, do not just emerge from the ground. Sometimes you get lucky. And you just find that other person romantically or otherwise where you just gel with them and it it all just kind of works and you don't need to put a lot of effort into it. But man, the truth is that is the exception, not the rule. And I've really noticed something like looking at personal growth, self helpy kind of content in general having to do with relationships where there's this real putting on a pedestal of the relationships like that, the ones that are just easy right out of the box. And I think that some people can get sucked into the trap of believing that if a relationship isn't that way, well, then that just means it's not meant to be. Like, I'm not meant to be friends with that person. I'm, I'm, you know, this relationship is just never going to work out. There's some friction there. Oh, I just don't like that person, whatever it is. And there's a place for that sometimes, particularly if you're in the like, I just don't like that person category. We all got people like that. It's okay. It happens. But most of the time, deep, deep, meaningful relationships are driven through deliberate effort. We go out of our way to make them happen. We have all of these little moments throughout the day where we could think something or do something or say something just a little bit differently. And if you add that up over and over again, those little tiny efforts make such a huge difference in our ability to have a healthy relationship with the people around us. And one of the things that I really appreciate about the book is that it focuses on these six different sections, which start with the individual and then spread out into the world around us. Because there are these different layers of relationship we can have. We can have a relationship with ourselves, with other people, and with the broader human community. And Rick really explores each of them. And I really appreciate that it starts with us. It starts with our relationship with ourselves, because If we're carrying around a lot of unresolved content, that is going to seep out into our relationships with other people. It's really unavoidable. And that emphasis on the individual, on our own effort, what we do, really wove its way in and out of the conversation today. It it showed up in little ways in just about everything that we talked about. When he talked about taking care of our side of the street consistently with other people. When he talked about appreciating and respecting our own wants and needs and becoming more effective at communicating them really clearly. Even aspects of managing conflict, like for example, when Rick talked about resizing a relationship to its stable foundation, that was the part where he was speaking about a situation where you look at a conflict with somebody else and you go, you know what, it's just not worth it to me to engage this. This is going to create more problems than it's going to solve with this person. And what really make sense for me to do is to just kind of limit my interactions with them to the areas where I feel like I can get some value and I feel like we can stay on a stable base. I know that they're not going to get really angry at me if we engage these kinds of topics, but I can't be confident in that if we engage these other kinds of topics over there. Those choices are individual choices. And they're about you coming to a realization inside of yourself of what's really going to work for you long-term. I also thought it was really useful how Rick emphasized everything that goes into setting up an interaction with another person. Something that can happen inside of our relationships, and I've definitely experienced this personally, is that things kind of snowball on you a little bit, where it feels like everything's kind of okay And you're going along and it's all all right. And then things start to get a little messy, but they're not messy enough. So you don't really engage them in the moment. And one thing leads to another and suddenly something happens that just lights the bonfire with another person in a really explosive way. But there were all of these little invisible moments that happened before that moment that contributed to it. And that if we had just been a little bit more effortful, a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more diligent, in the run-up, we would be able to engage the conflict when it does emerge so much more effectively. And so there's this focus on maintenance, the day-to-day, maybe particularly the moments when you're not in conflict with somebody else, being thoughtful about things like process inside of your relationship, because that really starts to matter if you do enter into a conflict with another person. Again, Rick's new book is Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. It's a wonderful book. It is filled with so much practical advice. And if you like the podcast, I think you'll love it. And you can find that, again, wherever books are sold. And if you'd like to support our work in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of a cup of coffee or two a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Also, if you somehow got to this point and you are not subscribed to the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast. Do that wherever you're listening now on. And you could even tell a friend about it. Hey, why not, right? It's one of the best ways that we have to reach new people. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.